not a I'm sorry, I realize that. Today, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's edition of the Liberal Scientific Society. So, first of all, announcements before we get to the substantive debate this evening, which is this house with scrap trousers. Really fun debate to pick up our spirits this week. Yeah, so, hello, I haven't seen you in a fortnight, so, long time to see. Hi. Yeah, so, what's the first one? Cork, Cork IV uh, is 25th 26th of November. Uh, this is the first IV that we're going to be organising teams for. We'll be putting up two team spots, for, so for uh, room for four speakers and one judge spot. If you're interested in speaking at that, it's probably the most uh, fun IV on the Irish circuit this year. Uh, you literally, it's a two-day competition. Uh, really fun social on the Friday nights. Uh, pretty much have a full Christmas dinner and then karaoke, uh, karaoke bar. Um, yeah, and then so the team fees for that are thirty-five pounds a person, but they will be subsidised to an extent by us at the treasurer. And Jeremy's just nodding at me, going, "Yeah, probably." Uh, yeah. So yes. So just over the past fortnight, we've had quite a lot going on. We've had the annual open competition, which brought. I think at the end of the day, there were 21 teams from across uh, Britain came along and one team from Bangladesh came along as well. Uh, which was our first uh, team coming to the debate from outside of Europe, so woohoo. Uh, that was this time week before last, so the 29th, 30th of October. Uh, yeah, it was great fun. We all went to Kremlin. Uh, I had, I think, two teams uh, signed up and then they sort of dropped out at the last minute. So we didn't technically have any Queen's teams participate in it, so I'd like to set the bar a bit higher for next year. But to be honest, my personal highlight was managing to convince uh, the manager of Kremlin to let the last 20 teams of ours in after the 10 o'clock deadline whilst Frank Andreas is a banana. <laughs> And then last Tuesday, Tuesday, yeah, Tuesday, uh, we had our US Consulate debate uh, against the University of Ulster Coleraine. Uh, that went very well. Uh, we won. Uh, so that may or may not have had a bearing on the election itself. Uh, I'd like everyone to give a great big round of applause for our team, which included Craig Miller, uh, and he's not here, so I don't have to say doctor. Uh, <laughs> Ellie Newton, uh, Hugh Dobbin, and our tech officer Chris Spratt. So, round of applause for all that. The last item of business for tonight, for announcements tonight, is uh, a, a big thank you to our partner, Mr. Connor Ardle, who uh, bought me a very fine gavel uh, to allow me to assert my authority. Because uh, <laughs> ringing a little bell is a little bit too upstairs, downstairs for. You know, authority. So, behold the gavel. Um, we'll probably have a you know a motion on what we're going to name said gavel. So, if anyone has an idea of the name for it, by all means. Uh, and with that, we come to our minutes, which this week are read uh, by Mr. Peterman. The sixth ordinary meeting at the Traffic took place on the twenty seventh October, twenty sixteen. Was attended by 48 members. Private members business was started with a question from Mr. Matthew Sullivan regarding the heightened tensions between Russia and NATO. He noted that the military buildup along the border is now at its largest since the Cold War. 
responses heard from Mr. Connolly, who stated that such tension was indicative of the West being fooled by the Middle East and the failure of current NATO policy, resulting in further aggression from Russia. Mr. Chris, Chris Sprout also responded by mentioning Ukraine and declaring that Putin is clearly a fascist. <laughs> Opinions of the new alliance leader were asked by Mr. Jack Armstrong. The response to Naomi Long's appointment was greeted with moderate enthusiasm, I think it's better to say, to indifference. <laughs> Concerns were raised regarding um, the Heathrow expansion, um, which inevitably led to people's having discussion of Belfast, a magnificent international airport. A suggestion from Jonathan Finley that the airport should be renamed Belfast London, or indeed Belfast. London Belfast, it was greeted with laughter from the house. The airport, however, have yet to be in contact regarding recommendation. Process questions were heard from Miss Rachel Island, who inquired to where the president had sourced his tie this evening. The president reply was suggested of a lack of knowledge regarding the ties of acquisition, but maintained that he'd been purchased from Max. Miss <laughs> Clara Campbell then asked the president about his breakfast in which he claimed that his breakfast of cinnamon crunch cereal was a sign that he was sticking to his working class roots, <laughs> raised an eyebrow or two, and mainly on the cereal's behalf, but it seemed rather unfair that the snack was being subjected to the rigidities of the class system. <laughs> <laughs> After a couple of weeks of particularly controversial debates, we decided to lighten the mood here at traffic. Thus, the President announced the motion for this week, this house would ban the burger. <laughs> First up for proposition was Miss Ellie Newton, who explained issues regarding identification of the coming full body coverage. She stressed that this is a very serious security risk that shouldn't be taken rightly. She went on to state that the burger was indicative of the repression of women and that banning the burger will be a liberating act. Opening for opposition was Mr. Jack Armstrong, who cited the human rights violations that a ban would cause, particularly Article 10, that being a freedom of religion. He argued that the situation in France was morally wrong, and that a ban would be giving extremist groups what they wanted, and heightening the sense of difference. Second speaker for opposition, who was fully dressed in burqa, Mo Musa, furthered the argument that the burqa is a sign of repression claiming that it represented an age of medieval misogyny, and noted that the countries in which wearing a burqa is commonplace are countries that all oppress minorities. He went on to conclude that you would not find a liberal Muslim who finds the burqa acceptable. Maiden speaker, she prediction, continued the argument for the proposition. She questioned the type of country we would want to live in, and whether that would be one of tolerance. She went on to discuss that the state have no right to have such a high level of involvement in the personal decisions of women. She vowed to let women partake in the cultural heritage and claimed that it would be a highly reactionary measure. Closing speaker for the proposition was Dr. Craig Miller, who asserted that the wearing of the burqa was a cultural rather than a religious practice. Dr. Miller then went on to explain the cultural norms which are currently prevented by law and reinforce the importance of security. He concluded by claiming that the banning of the burqa would be a decision that would benefit the 95%. Closing speaker for the opposition was Miss Katrina Schwartz, who began her speech by highlighting 
the paradoxical nature of placing restrictions on what women can't wear to promote body autonomy. She argued that the burqa isn't a security risk, highlighting that more crimes are being committed with people in Halloween masks. Her speech was concluded by asserting that the rights of women should always outweigh the potential security risk. Questions were then heard from Shay Glasgow, Con Jordan, Jeremy Muller, Jonathan Finley, and John McKean. Um, a vote on personal opinion was taken at which read seven ayes, 27 nays, and 11 abstentions. A casting vote on speakerability on the motion, this house will ban the burqa, read 22 ayes, 12 nays, and 10 abstentions. May I take the minister Aye. Thank you very much for that, and uh, this is the point where we would normally do private members' business and we'd all have many debates, but it's been such an uneventful week that I'm just going to move straight on. <laughs> anyway, so if anyone has a small issue that they'd like to put before the House and start a mini debate about something, anything, anything at all in the world, anything, because really anything we can talk about. Here's some uh, the window's open because this room always gets really warm and it's uncomfortable and, you know, I'd like the windows to be open. I wish I could put it in the same way. I had a motion to open the windows. <laughs> I'd like to say, I wish to propose the motion that this house would open the windows. Second, <laughs> oh. second. Um, yeah, I mean, I take that as a vote. I I meant the motion that this house would subsequently close the windows. <laughs> Like, are we, talk, are we talking immediately after, or are we talking like, will there be like an ascertainable amount of time? I leave that, I leave that between the judicial square. <laughs> okay. The brave people have voted to open the window, and have thought to come forward putting their predictions on it, so British, I say. This is what's all So, would you like to exercise your sovereignty? Would anyone like to exercise their sovereignty here and open the window? Apparently not. Are the windows open? Are they? Yeah, I'll do that, yeah. I mean, it's just like... Yeah, open the windows. Shackles after the open the window. British sovereignty, closing before a nice surprise gets in. Yes, you. Don't remember my name? That's a good one. I have a feeling that someone might have gone left with the speak, but I can't remember who it is. So can the voice inform me if it was left with the speak? Is that dog elected as mayor? <laughs> that was a really cute looking dog. <laughs> you see that video? No. This dog was being elected as mayor. Where from? Somewhere in America. What's the dog? It was a Labrador, I think. That's all advice, because Labradors aren't actually that small. No, they're not. No, no, but that doesn't seem to, you know, be much of a, a problem for most Americans. <laughs> so, big volumes. Uh, they don't have an actual debate. They're like, who's over there? Well, I think 
we need to address the elephant room that is the great political revelation sort of come to light. I'd like to see if anyone has been following the situation in South Korea, the revelations surrounding presidency. Well, you were telling me about it earlier, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, I, I was just wondering if anyone else had been following it, because it's very interesting to see how the, the populist voices are starting to take a grip on South Korean politics. For those of us who aren't in the know about South Korean politics, would you like to enlighten us as to what's been going on? Yeah, um, well, for a long time, the, the party has been, the current party has been elected on a ticket to fighting corruption, and the presidential candidate, Miss um, Kim, um, has run on a ticket which, considering she would tackle the problem of family. Uh, based corruption in South Korean politics, industry, commerce, and culture. And uh, she said that because she had no no husband and no children, that she'd be free from those values, which have been very much a problem since they transitioned away from dictatorship. However, it's come to light now that ever since her father's death, she has been consulting very, very deep um, information to what seems to have been a shaman of a cult based inside politics. So we don't have all the information yet. However, we do know that she handed over state secrets to someone that had no connection to South Korean politics, and that she benefited immensely financially from transactions that were made from information based on. So we're in this awkward position where South Korean establishment and the population don't want to replace her because North Korea is currently is in a tight standoff and they don't want to look like they're divided internally. But on the other hand, if they continue to let her in office, faith in the democratic process to fight corruption, which is very much uneasy right now, is under under siege. And I was just wondering if anyone else in the house has just been following, because I've been finding it very interesting. I've been reading up on that. Uh, I, I don't know if there's anything else interesting in politics right now. <laughs> Does anyone want to express an opinion on that? Well, no. No? Or either of these, oh, Mr. 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 If we're talking about the 21st century, you do have to admit that Blair is pretty influential at the start, specifically really? the third rock core. Fair. Anyone want to pick up on that? Yourself, or I would put to the house that it's not actually 94 hours, it's the big man, it's Brexit. And they're just writing up for Brexit rather than Farage. Is Brexit a person? No, I said like the idea of Brexit. Fair. Would he be the, the anointed one of Brexit, or is he the Brexit messenger here upon Earth? Yourself, sir. I don't think Nigel Farage has actually anything original. People like Nigel Farage for decades, like, probably Trump is not, but he's probably just a call. I don't know why I heard this illusion. What a success in the world of fascists before Hitler. I mean, they can't lose the game. True, but like. That's what I want to do. Um, well, I would like to express something that reflects off what Jason just said at times. Also, expresses an emotion that 
if you want to make Hitler comparisons, you might want to compare it to a shocking election of Donald J. Trump, which no one expected. What a segue! <laughs> Washington and other like big hold-up cities are getting most of the vote because they can hire a population, but and um, politicians will try to ignore the rural states. I don't support electoral college. <laughs> it doesn't end up doing that, it just ends up allowing swing states to have more of a say. Sir Arbor? Mr. President, technically the electoral college was designed to prevent situations exactly like this, where it was designed to stop demagogues taking power. The fact is that the electoral college is supposed to step in now, be independent, and think, do we really want this fuckwit as our president? Um, so, the thing is, they won't do that, and um, that is a different matter. But technically, under the US Constitution, the US president is not directly, direct, uh, directly elected. They should be able to say, do we want this person as our president? And um, they won't. So, the institution is problematic in itself and comes from as the southern states wanting to have power um, and using, using slavery as an effort to get that power. But um, the fact is that if, if you want the system, if you, if you think that Americans were idiots for voting for Donald Trump, then um, the electoral college is actually a good thing and that it should technically prevent it, but it won't. So you have to look at the system as a whole, see what it's designed to do before you make a decision based on whether the electoral college should be abolished. Mr. Scrat, do you want to respond to that? So it, it, it's not a direct response to Mr. Ardo's point, but it is a, a point on the electoral college, and it is that the issues the underlying surrounding the presidency are far deeper reaching and far, far broader than simply the electoral college. The entire system for electing a president is complete un completely unfit for its purpose. And to be honest, the presidency itself is completely unfit for purpose. You keep on looking at me when you say this. You're the only person I have the direct line of eyesight with, rather than looking down at poor Jeremy here. Because I'm a man of the people, and I don't like looking down at people. But to imbue that much power in one single person, and to have the idea that an electoral college is meant to allow rural and various different states and underrepresented um, to have representation through one person rather than a set of representatives is it's, it's madness, to be honest. You know, the only real answer, and this is something that came up in my speech in the uh, <laughs> US electoral debate that we held, and you can now listen to it online. And, 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 
trying to get in for that 200 mark, hopefully, for this one. But the truth is that the presidency needs to be neutered. Right. To expect representation from the people, from one single person, from that single person to represent all of you states, it's completely irrational. And the truth is that they need to copy Ireland and have a ceremonial head of state which is elected, you know, and have a much more calm and stable form of government, a much more representative state of government than this shit show. Are you, are you implicitly in proposing the motion that this house would elect Michael D. Higgins as the president of America? <laughs> <laughs> would we like to take a vote on that? Would anyone like to talk against Michael D. Higgins? There he is. No? Well, I mean, I think that's pretty a, point, a pretty poignant note to end Prime business on, and it's going very swiftly on to action. Well, I mean, we haven't even actually had proper motion. I, I would like to congratulate the Irish rugby team on their historic win against New Zealand for the first time in. They beat the New Zealand team, and I refuse to call them the All Blacks because that's bloody Adidas, Margaret. Here, here. Yes, so unless anyone else has anything else to say. Yourself, sir? Daniel. Given how he polled more favorably against uh, Hillary Clinton, against Trump, uh, does this House think that had Bernie Sanders been the Democratic nominee, that he would have beaten Trump? No. Sorry, I feel like Mr. Buckley might have been. Well, this is a bad story, Craig. And also, Bernie Sanders may have had a bad shot against Trump because of the terrible catastrophe that this election was. But if Hillary Clinton would have been a bad president, because Hillary Clinton would be the next president. Would have been the offer to I think it just should, yes, I think Andy Wolfe, and I think the reason why is because if you had said a year and a half ago when I'm down and announced he was running that Hillary Trump wouldn't be able to beat him, you'd say that that's clearly Hillary Trump's fault. And if you can't beat Donald Trump at all the things he says, if you can't beat him in the US election, well then it's on you, so definitely Andy Wolfe is a problem. say that the Republican Party actually had dirt on Bernie Sanders, so it's unlikely he would have won against Trump because they had videos of Bernie saying that it was okay for underage girls to have relationships with adult men. So therefore, it was better for Hillary to run in a race against Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> did, did Bernie Sanders defend rapists in court? Did Bernie Sanders uh, completely screw up dealing with classified information that has now been leaked by WikiLeaks to millions of people? <laughs> 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 Three words Uncle Joe Biden. He's a charming man. <laughs> Be that as it may.
Mr. Dare, I mean, here we are again. Where this is the third time in six months where the pollsters, where all this, where the media completely missed the mark. And even now, they're trying to go to Bernie Sanders as the latest, greatest excuse for why Hillary Clinton didn't beat Donald Trump. And even now, the grounds for yet another repeat. We had the Conservative majority in May. We had the referendum with Donald Trump. And the grounds in France are very much turning towards Marine Le Pen winning. And unless people actually go to where this is changing and actually address why this is becoming the case, expect it repeating in Austria, in the Netherlands, and Germany very soon. Mr. White, actually? Yeah, on the point of polling, looking at the, the fallout, um, seems to be the two main kind of. Uh, Platforms that Trump, uh, that Trump actually went on was his uh, bringing out of the working class. He got 60% more working class vote than Republicans as well. And it was also the fact that a lot of uh, Democrats didn't actually just come out to vote for Hillary. Perhaps maybe because they didn't want to vote for the abstain, or maybe because the polls told them that Donald Trump had nearly no chance of winning. And I propose to the House that this House believes that Hillary lost because of the polls. Not the Polish. Yeah, I was Polish. supposed to say that. Thread it carefully. In line with the fact that 46% of women voted for Trump, do you think it's time that we stopped moving it through the misogynist, racist, xenophobe lens that we're seeing it from and realise that actually it was the economy and he spoke a lot of sense in the eyes of a lot of Americans? If you actually read his 100 days plan, it's more about that, I think. And can anyone think of why 40% of women would have voted for him otherwise? Thank you, thank you. Just in response to the Mr. President, um, of, do we think that Bernie Sanders would have beaten Donald Trump? I don't think he would. Um, the thing is that Hillary Clinton did technically get more votes than Donald Trump. To say that America didn't like Hillary Clinton is not entirely true since more people did vote for her. But the system being what it is, she still lost that one directly. Now, the problem with Bernie Sanders is as much as he might be seen as an anti-establishment candidate in the same way that Donald Trump is, is that the Republican Party is very much geared to be an attack machine. It's very much geared to be attacking Democrats and attacking their weakest. Now, the USA is a free market economy and very proud of that fact. It's also very proud of its national state military, all these things um, Bernie Sanders opposes. He, he is a self-proclaimed socialist, and that message is so easy to be lampooned in America. I, at least with Hillary Clinton, while they, while they attacked her, they attacked her on the ground that the Republican Party stands pretty firm on interventionism, and strong, strong government. Like, those things are the natural territory of the Republican Party, which is very much what Hillary Clinton was trying to be. She was trying to be a consensus builder around those sort of values that everyone holds here. And Trump, Trump is an anti-establishment candidate. Yes, the idea that just like the 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 antidote to that is to have a left-wing anti-establishment candidate, but it's not because when the the patterns you've seen through Austria, through the Netherlands, is that when it's the anti-establishment candidates that are coming through, they're on the right wing because they say populist things. They don't. They're not. It isn't about being internationalist or being giving money to people. People don't want that. They want. 
They want to bash someone else, and they want, and they want to like, have pride in the country. That's not what the left-wing alternative will give them, and that's why Bernie Sanders wouldn't win an election. I hate not being like I have an opinion on this. Excelsior. I may just pick up the point about Hillary being popular. She was not just because uh, she got more votes doesn't mean that people liked her. A lot of people did just compromise. Like uh, Hillary and Trump are actually two of the most, two of the least favorable candidates of all time. They are absolutely despised by most Americans, like over 50% really. And uh, like, you can, just because you vote for someone doesn't mean you like them. You're, a lot of people were just compromising, I think. I'm going to make a neutral observation, not actually geared towards anyone's side, but what I noticed was that the demographic breakdown showed that when you look into the incomes, the brackets, and which way they voted, um, from what I saw, it was actually people who, vote, who earned less than $30,000 uh, a year, and even $50,000 a year from that bracket with the downwards, didn't actually vote for Trump. Which I, so I think sort of challenges that. Because I understand what you said about the fact that um, he brought out a much higher turnout of people within those demographics, but it seems that he brought more out to vote for Hillary. And what does that say about. among uh, black voters and simple fact, as anyone who came along to the Atlanta debate will know, is that uh, black households in the US make up a huge, huge uh, part of the empowerment uh, the communities. Uh, they were never going to vote for Trump. So I think we should more look to the fact that not that Hillary had the majority of working class vote, but that Trump had a 16% gain over Mitt Romney. He was never going to completely dominate it, but that 16% was huge. Sorry. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm sorry, this isn't actually related to Trump, but um, I'd like to propose today um, that we close my tweets again because I'm getting cold. I don't want to be cold. Yeah, that was normal. 
She's on top of the stable. That's more than one. You're a serious woman. Just fruit. You know something like that. You're a serious woman. You're a serious woman. I started my IT on toast. And it was definitely more lower class than what I had last week. Well, I mean, not something that could have been feasibly bought in Waitrose, even though it was bought in Waitrose. I would have went to... Yes, I would have went to... Do you think the state of your diet is healthy? For a student, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I eat better than most students, to be fair. Or human being. Pardon? For a human being? I mean, a uh, human being that cares probably not. No. Any other questions at all yourself? What kind of bread was that you cheese on toast? Well, it was technically brown bread, so that's, you know, that's fiber really good for your digestion and all that. So that's a fun. Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Clinton? Where'd you get your tie? This was your next, so this Ah, Right, without further ado, we'll move on to the debate. Finally, what do you want? Does presidential neutrality extend the president's questions? I mean, extend. I mean, ne neutrality. I mean, your neutrality and your position on opinions. So if you were to ask me, sees the means of production, yeah or nay, yes. I'd have to be like, no comment. Yes. Does that continue in President's questions? Because then we're asking you. Oh, I mean, as long as you don't ask me on really, really awkwardly uh, opinionated things where I have to take a political position, then yeah. I mean, th th this isn't a very well regulated area of the Constitution, so I mean, I've never actually been thrown a curveball like that. Um, so just don't ask me anything really hard, please. What do you want? So uh, our petition to be run with it. Yes, well, yeah, well, yeah, we're going there. We're going there. Uh, we're moving on to the motion tonight, which is this house was scrapped Friday, and the first speaker on the proposition is for Jack Marshall. Thank you very much, Mr. President and fellow members of the House. Tonight, we will be debating whether to scrap an anachronistic, outdated relic of the Cold War, the Trident nuclear weapon system, the sole purpose of which is huge destruction and loss of life. I would like to begin by arguing why Trident does not work as a deterrent, how resources devoted to it could be better used elsewhere, and answer why the UK government is so determined to maintain it and how it's used as a political weapon. My first colleague, Peter, will then discuss near misses regarding nuclear weapons, security breaches at the Trident base, and how nuclear weapons are genocidal in nature. And my other colleague, Jason, will then discuss the economic and moral arguments against Trident. So, the Ministry of Defence outlines the purpose of Trident as, and I quote from their website, to deter the most extreme threats to our national security and way of life, which cannot be done by other means. End quote. It is worth considering this quotation. First, what are the most extreme threats to our national security? Well, according to the 2015 National Security Strategy, the main threats the UK faces are international terrorism, climate change, and cybercrime. It is difficult to see how nuclear weapons can resolve any of these, 
For example, you could use nuclear weapons against ISIS, but that would result in deaths of thousands of innocent people, and not to mention huge environmental damage. So the aforementioned quotation also says that our national security cannot be maintained by other means. Well, perhaps it could if Trident did not require so much money in order to build and maintain. Over the next 30 years, it is estimated that Trident will cost us approximately 205 billion pounds. Uh, I'll take it one minute. Not to finish the uh, Over the next 30 years, because the UK defence expenditure is currently capped at 2% GDP, thanks to our NATO commitments, and also a portion of that, which is is going to China at the expense of more conventional defence measures, which are actually useful and which will actually be used at some point. Thank you. Um, use the £205 billion figure and get it from the Guardian. Um, well, um, it's actually incorrect. It's using a um, source from the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, which is biased. From the um, full fact website, which is an independent website, which claims that it's worth um, 2 billion a year plus the 40 billion over 30 years, so it would be about 80, 90, or 100 billion, not near the 200 billion figure. Well, in fairness, the UK government even would admit that you know, it's impossible to say. I mean, there's, there's certain things about 31 billion just to build it, and then who knows how long it will last for, so um, I'll take your point just after this. So, to take a hypothetical situation to prove my point, one which unfortunately seems more likely since the aforementioned presidential election. So, if Russia invaded Estonia tomorrow, the UK would obviously not launch a nuclear bomb against Russia because that would be produce no result apart from widespread death and destruction. Instead, it would likely come to Estonia's defence by providing troops and weapons, etc. Which, if we didn't have tried it, we would spend more money on those sort of things as part of our 2% GDP. Therefore, we need to prioritise defence mechanisms which would actually come in handy in times of crisis. On that point, I think I want to finish the sentence. Uh, not an archaic economy project which should be left behind the 80s alongside the new president. Let's say that we scrap our nuclear weapons. Yep. Russia still has nuclear weapons and can then go, well, we're going to invade Estonia. And you're not going to stop us, because if you try to stop us, London will be glassed. Well, thankfully we still have allies, well, for now, in the United States who defend us, and unfortunately it seems as though China is not. Sorry, we're taking the points from another time, but... So yeah, I think we're... That is unlikely to happen to somebody else will, you know, hopefully come to our defence, but with Mr. Trump we have no idea. So does the theory of deterrence actually work? Will two countries who possess nuclear weapons never go to war? The answer is simply no. We do not need to go any further than the cargo war between India and Pakistan in 1999, India gained nuclear weapons in 1974, and Pakistan in 1998, so this war occurred a year after. They both possessed weapons, so that did not obviously stop them fighting. Thankfully, they didn't use said weapons, though. So. so during the Cold War, deterrence gave away the proxy wars, as the United States and Soviet Union took opposite sides in Korea, Vietnam, and Afghanistan in order to spread their ideology without directly confronting one another. Therefore, smaller countries without nuclear weapons are often the ones who suffer the most. The other key point, 
I wish to, I want to address is this. Why is the UK government so committed to these weapons of mass destruction? It's not simply because of defence, it is actually because of power. The UK wants to maintain the image that it remains a great power in the world. It wants to prove its permanent place or its permanent seat on the UN Security Council alongside France, America, China and Russia, of course all four of whom have nuclear weapons and are permitted under the Non-Proliferation Treaty from doing so. This strikes me as somewhat paradoxical, as the UK is doing its best to undermine its role on the world stage, whether it's for the <coughs> Scottish independence, the UK's uh, upcoming departure from the EU, or the Prime Minister's personal desire for the UK to leave the European Convention of Human Rights. But there is another purpose attached to Trident for the Conservative government. They can use it as a political weapon against the Labour Party by presenting a unified stance on nuclear deterrence. The Tories have betrayed themselves as strong and Labour is weak. This has been exacerbated by Jeremy Corbyn's personal opposition to Trident, contradicting with most of his party's MPs. I was not surprised when Theresa May's first debate as Prime Minister was on Trident. What better way to split the opposition? and present herself as the only true leader. This is not how politics should be done. It is cynical politics that is worse. And by scrapping Trident, we can move on to issues that actually affect ordinary people. So to conclude, Trident is an obsolete, outdated throwback to a past age in which some seem to desire to return to. But renewing Trident will not make Britain great again. It will not resolve a single key issue facing the UK. It will not provide a deterrent to keep our up to help our allies, and it will continue to be used by the government to inflate their ego and delude themselves that they are still world leaders. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Matt. I'm the first speaker for the opposition in this career, Matt. must always be considered. Therefore, I would ask of you to consider the consequences of scrapping Trident. These are the consequences versus the faults which the proposition would like to explain to you. But scrapping Trident, just because it has faults, is like cutting off the nose to spice the face. I have three points to prove to you why you should oppose this motion to scrap Trident. One, Jobs, two, deterrence, and three, defense. Firstly, jobs. Sure, Trident may be expensive, and it does cost 40 million and 2 billion annually, not 200 billion. But the flip side of that is how many jobs it creates. According to the BBC, there are 15,000 highly skilled jobs involved with Trident. Not to mention the countless supporting jobs, such as transport. These highly skilled jobs involve shipbuilding, aerospace, mechanical and electrical design. We have enough trouble creating jobs without destroying more folks, honestly. So think of the consequences. 
scrapping 15,000 jobs with destroyed communities. And what about the people who spent their whole careers, whole careers, building nuclear weapons going to do if we don't have any nuclear weapons? They are going to go off to foreign countries like France, China, and it is going to be a brain drain. Not only will we have no nuclear weapons, but we will have no capacity to rebuild them if we decide that we've made a mistake. And I would just like to mention that the cost of decommissioning Trident would actually cost a lot. So it's not like you're going to save that much money from scrapping Trident. Secondly, deterrence. Now, as much as the proposition would like to tell you we don't use Trident, we use it every second of every day as a political prop. It is relevant, even if it is the most pressing issue because immigration is everywhere, everywhere nowadays. It is there in the background and it is keeping us safe. One of the reasons interstate war is so low between Western countries is because of nuclear deterrence. Right now, we need to keep that deterrence by ourselves. If you haven't noticed, the UK has politically left the EU and the US just elected someone who said they may not fulfill Article 5 of NATO. You say we don't need nuclear weapons because it's faulty and we can do without them. But you don't know what the future holds. You don't. You certainly didn't know that Trump was going to be elected. So how do you know that we might not need nuclear weapons? On that point. Okay. We signed up to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, Article 6 of which says that we have to work towards the cessation of the production of all military nuclear weapons. So in fact, we are, point, okay. we are legally First of all, this motion is just on scrapping Trident. It is not a debate on whether nuclear weapons are bad or good in general. It is can we live in a world by Trident or with it? So your point is pretty relevant too. It's possible in an isolationist world, which may come to fruit, that without any allies, there's nothing to stop anyone from nuking the UK other than the prospect of mutually assured destruction. And even if you say this terms has failed because other states have nuclear weapons, even if you scrap Trident, they still have those weapons, and they won't have any incentive not to use them against us. Thirdly, defence. Even with the prospect of isolationism, we still do live in the world we live in today, and so we must be prepared for every option, even if we don't know what the future holds. Today, the UK's role in the international stage is shaped by how we defend ourselves and our allies. The UK can no longer freeload off the US, despite our close allyship. They have elected someone who is very isolationist. Okay, yeah. Uh, you mentioned how we need to defend our allies. Would not be better than, as mentioned in the previous point, if one was invaded to commit more money towards conventional weapons? We can actually use okay, okay, so First of all, between Western countries, there's no real point in stocking up ordinary weapons because nuclear weapons are always there. The reason nuclear weapons are not used is because of mutually assured destruction. The UK can no longer be the doctor yet, but NATO can no longer be starting of America's back. Therefore, NATO will look towards other countries that have nuclear weapons, like us, and France. But unlike France's nuclear weapons, Trident is specifically pledged to defend NATO. 
specifically. To guarantee security of other native states means that they don't have to create new nuclear weapons or ally with Russia because of theirs. So scrapping Trident would let everyone in NATO dying. Trident isn't perfect. Trident needs updating and it needs better regulation and a replacement for Trident might serve its purpose more efficiently. But this isn't what the motion is about. This motion is a binary choice between a world with Trident and without Trident. Now, going ahead and scrapping something before you plan what to do next to curtail the negative consequences. Sounds like another choice, a risky one, that the UK has already made this year. The point can fall further than it already has hoped. So, the point is that we are better off in a world with Trident. The world is unstable and volatile enough as it is, so making emotional choices based on ideological purity doesn't mean we're making the best decision for our future. We are better off being prepared for every eventuality, including nuclear war. So, take the safe choice and don't scrap Trident. And with that, we are safe by Campbell. Second speaker, proposition tonight, Mr. Peter Byrne. House Chair and we're the opposition. So I was firstly like going into my actual arguments to talk about some of the rebuttals for jobs. So you mentioned how we would lose all these jobs if we would scrap trading, which you actually would definitely admit that. The thing is, I think I was discussing the first speech about how much money is spent on Trident. This money that is spent on Trident cannot go towards jobs, new jobs from the employers people, and currently the um, Trident is, um, is built in the shipyards in Barry and Furnace, and there are arguments to say that we can actually in future build ships there, such as conventional weapons, such as aircraft carriers, as the first speaker mentioned. So those workers could work in the shipyards as well, instead of building nuclear weapons. So it's not you can't just say that oh, we won't have any jobs after trying, it's just not be in different places. So to focus on my arguments for tonight, I will focus on kind of near misses that we've had with nuclear weapons in the past, and how this is very dangerous, and also the security breaches at Pakistan, where the Trident is uh, based, and also the genocidal nature of Trident. So, the near misses. In North Dakota in 1980, a bomber caught fire which was carrying nuclear warheads. 80 nuclear warheads, and only Air Force winds in that, in that particular event prevented the fire from spreading, from spreading and reaching nuclear weapons. So if this fire had reached nuclear weapons, it would have spread radioactive plutonium across the whole city of North Dakota and also destroyed the states. Point. Um, with respect, um, Trident is, you know, in submarines. So your point is kind of... Yeah, yeah it's still about nuclear weapons though. But there are also the motion is about Trident. So there are, I'm comparing the Trident to nuclear weapons, because Trident is a nuclear weapon, and therefore it is also risky. It's not just because it's a submarine, because it's an aircraft carrier. So on to a second point about another case, which is kind of similar to Trident, where storage glues for nuclear weapons, which we do actually have for Trident. We have places where the nuclear weapons are stored and built. 
So in this case, it was in 1956, another bomber crashed into this, into this storage igloo, and then, and therefore there was a huge fire, but only due to the swift work of fire crews was this put out, which meant that the nuclear weapons weren't detonated. On that point, thank you. And so all these nuclear weapons, they would have detonated and could have wiped out the whole of Suffolk. Now, there are thought to be many other whole year misses, but they just simply are reported just to kind of keep the integrity of Trident. So, moving on to the, like, the security breaches of uh, Fastlane, there have been two occasions in the quite recent history where protesters have actually gained access to the Fastlane nuclear base. And here, they, like, there's this case here. What? Yeah. Um, with respect, isn't that owing to dangerous actions by protesters instead of the integrity of Trident? It is. It's, it's the actions of protesters, but these actions of protesters perfectly illustrate why it's so dangerous to have the likes of Trident. I know that they were doing it for different means, but if people were to go there with the actual intention of causing horrendous damage, then they easily could. In May 2015, a protester came in and roamed the full fueling bay for 10 hours and not was in notice. Imagine the amount of destruction that he could have actually caused in that amount of time. And in 2014, two protesters in kayaks accessed the site and went into the internal perimeter of the site and they were just, just going to security guards saying, oh yeah, we should go. And they let them. So it's so, so dangerous to have a trident there when it's so unwell, not very well protected at all. Point? No, thank you. And so let me move on to my kind of second main point about the moral nature of Trident and how it is so, so immoral. It's in fact genocidal in nature, and I think that is quite a big fault. <laughs> um, so each warhead is eight times more powerful than the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, with Trident being designed to carry 12 of these um, warheads. So if you think about it, think how, I think we all know how horrendous Hiroshima was. The huge destruction, the deaths, well, this would be the case with Trident as well, even more so, as that fact illustrates. Point. No, thank you. So, if we, um, there's, a, there's a case study that was published recently about the consequences of using Trident on, a, on Russia, in particular Moscow. So, in this sort of case, the humanitarian aid would be impossible due to the destruction of fire service and hospitals, and it was estimated that 5.37 million would be killed in Moscow and 788,000 of these would be children. These are all innocent civilians. So how can we, no thank you. So how can we actually justify killing innocent civilians? Now, think of Theresa May with a finger on the nuclear button. Now, even if you think how cold-blooded Theresa May is, I, I would really struggle to think that she is so cold-blooded that she could kill 5.37 million people, no thank you. Would that be able to innocent civilians, over 5 million? With this in mind, if someone is never going to press a nuclear button because of the yes. thank you, because of the huge amount of death it would cause, then why will we have it when it is such a dangerous no thank you breach of our security? Imagine if one of these events that happened in North Dakota or in Sussex, Suffolk was happened. That would be a huge destruction and radiation across the UK never mind the whole of Europe or the US. So with this in mind, I urge you that Trident should be renewed.
the President, comrades of the House, this argument will never state a claim for nuclear proliferation. Personally, I would love to see an end to the nuclear weapons program. One of the most dangerous and awesome of power as our society and our whole civilization has ever designed, devised, and created. But that is not what this motion is. It, it does not, that is not what this motion wants to achieve. This debate isn't whether we should universally and unilaterally scrap nuclear weapons, but in fact that just Britain should weaken its security and political vision on the world. These are two completely different arguments, and I would encourage you all to remember that as this debate goes on. The second speaker spoke of protesters at the nuclear base of Scotland. However, I would argue this does show a clear misunderstanding as to the depths and science that goes into nuclear technology. Do you seriously think that these protesters can actually get access to toxic radioactive material and also with the potential of like harnessing nuclear power and launching these missiles? Like it just won't happen. These are normal protesters trying to get a protest without her. And also, he failed to mention relevant meltdowns with regard to Trident. I understand they were in the 50s and 60s and stuff like but in terms of actual Trident technology, there, is, there hasn't ever been a real scare, and there probably will now There are, of course, many avenues of conversation and many miles worth of argument in this motion. I will start off the journey with cost and reallocation of funds. In the age of information, the bottom line is essential in everything. So let's look at the figures. Trident costs 2.04 billion per year to maintain and develop. This compensates for 6% of the Ministry of Defence's annual budget of 34 billion pounds. If Trident were to be scrapped, this money would only be reallocated to bolster ammunition, train more men, or buy better equipment. Forget the idea that the money saved would be recycled back into the economy, or welfare, or schools. Defence is defence, and scrapping Trident isn't going to change the outcome only the method of delivery. Our government has never been responsible for the dropping of a weapon of mass destruction, nor will it. We should look with confidence at the example this government has set in restraining its use of these catastrophic weapons. And indeed the example of Russia, China, France and others. We know what the fate of the world would be should we go down this apocalyptic destructive path. In response to what the first speaker alluded to, of course that is what we want our governments to do. You spoke of like how it's a power tool. That is essentially what you want your government to do. You want to be a main power in the world. You want them to have... On that point, sir. Yes, I would say. Is it not time that Britain accepts its terminal decline <laughs> and loss of status in the world as it shuffles off into ignominy? just like eat off into the existence whilst we are at the top. Once you're at the bottom, you can then maybe raise that point and see if it still stacks up. A key issue at stake here is how Britain would look on the world stage if it was to scrap trade, and more importantly, how the US, our closest ally, would see us. There are bigger things at play here. As we have just seen, President-elect Trump will be in the way <laughs> If we scrap trade, we will not... If we scrap, scrap trade, Trump will not follow suit. The idea is a noble one, but it's not a practical one. If we scrap Trident, it will only put into jeopardy the numerous military weapons deals that we still have with the US. They are by far the biggest developer of military technology in the world, and we would effectively be slapping them in the face if we scrap Trident. Decades of help and assistance and lucrative trade deals all at risk. 
and we would be turning our backs on all of this. The diplomatic implications of which couldn't be any more severe. Uh, no, and let's not miss out on poor old NATO. Trump wants rid of it, and Britain will have no nuclear arsenal defended against the Soviet, or sorry, uh, the Russian Democrats <laughs> coming from the east. But not long effects from scrapping our nuclear deterrent are ongoing and damaging to our island nation's place in the world. Our government since 1945 has always had this deterrent, ensuring, ensuring peace for our nation. It is the only weapon capable of fully ensuring our lands from attack. And we have lived in an age of unparalleled peace and prosperity due to this fact. Point on that? Yes, So when we come at countries like Germany and Japan, they don't have nuclear weapons, but I'm sure you all understand that these are secure countries that are economically viable. So why can't we just follow that lead and not have nuclear weapons? Absolutely, I, I do agree with you. I'm not saying that everyone's going to get invaded, but it is a deterrent. And, and, and the point is the deterrent. Um, Germany are also lucky to be on the umbrella of NATO. Where France, Britain, and US will ultimately defend, defending most of the Russia, China. So, like, I, I do agree. Look, we live in a, a world of peace and prosperity. But if anything was to change, that's why we need these weapons. They are essentially the final call. Something that we all take for granted are the inalienable rights that are bestowed upon us at birth as citizens of a modern, civilized, progressive, Western, democratic society. Nowhere else in the world and no other time in the history of the human race have these views been held by so many people. The West is the future of human progress and individual freedom. And we must never forget that behind all these moral and civic values, progressive thoughts and learned ideas is the awesome power that we possess should we ever have to defend. We must never forget the world security and equality that comes with the harrowing idea of mutually assured destruction. To finish, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the Universal Disarmament of Weapons of Mass Destruction is a benchmark, uh, an aim and a hope for all of our societies and nations. Until then, we have a united consensus on the importance of never using these devastating, devastating weapons again. But we should never purposefully undermine the freedom and position of the West and leave our closest allies to fend for themselves in this world of growing uncertainty. If you would be so kind as to indulge me, I will close this argument with a poignant bit of poetry. <laughs> Alfred Lord Tennyson. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. Made weak by time and fate, but strong in will. To strive, to seek, to find, and not to be. Closing the debate for the proposition tonight is the Jason Buck. Chairperson and staying in opposition and fellow teammates. First of all, just, I just want to say go easy on this night because it's been a rough week. So, we're here tonight to discuss the motion of national security and that's whether or not the UK should continue to uh, invest in weapons of mass destruction as a deterrent to an attack which, quite frankly, isn't going to come, and if, even if it does come, we're all going to be dead anyway. 
but just to start with your end. So basically, first of all, we want to talk about the cost. Um, so the cost of the mass destruction is absolutely grotesque. It's obscene that our government wants to invest this much in weapons of, of this nature. Um, we spent about 20 billion reviewing this, and we're going to spend about 100 billion over the next 40 years and like servicing it and maintaining it. Um, and that, that is a hefty price. And why, what I want to ask is, why can't that money be spent on things that affect people's daily lives, the NHS, their education, the, uh, the infrastructure in the country. It's an absolute disgrace that we don't want to spend on something that's not even going to go first. Isn't it more likely that the government spent it on Brexit rather than <laughs> <laughs> I am not here to defend the British government. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to. But, um, yeah, well, I mean, you bring up a great point, which is in this country is in a period of crisis right now. They just elected a racist demagogue in the United States and we're about to pull out of here. So I don't think we should really be spending money on things that aren't going to happen. Let's tackle the issues that are in front of us. Um, so basically, yes, Britain's spending all this money. And an argument we often hear about um, the, these, use of these weapons is that it's all about the safety of the nation. I want to ask you, what is safe about refusing to invest in the NHS and letting people wait ridiculous amounts of time in hospitals and dying because of it? And um, what's safe about letting the housing crisis grow worse and worse and um, grow out of control? Um, and what's safe about just investing in something that's not going to happen? What's the point? Surely then, we should keep nuclear weapons as a defense against total nuclear war and get rid of our military, which, let's face it, is only really useful for intervention at this point. I mean, I would disagree. Um, Um, not investing and seeing the 
And so on that money, I've actually looked this up. We could build 120 new state-of-the-art hospitals. We could build 3 million new affordable housing. Um, new homes we could install, so we're planning every home working with this money, and we could pay tuition fees for 8 million students on that one. So this is the point. Um, your argument is in fact we scrap trade, it's lower military spend. If trade makes up six trade makes up six percent of the military budget. Yeah. If you scrap it, that money's not going to go towards these things, it's going to stay within the military budget, which is two percent. So your, your point is effectively let's lower the military budget, which is fine, but that's not what this motion is about. No, but I'm saying we should have, if we because you've seen the amount of revenue that comes from this, if we scrap it, and um, plus it's a clinical choice whether it stays on the military spend, and actually doesn't have to. And I, fact, it's, uh, I accept that the Tories, we actually don't know what's going to happen, but you know, it is a clinical choice. Um, so another thing I want to bring up is we have already clarified that we're not going to fire these weapons first. So the only the only like situation in which they're actually going to be used is when we're attacked, and by that point we're all going to die. So let's just let, not make our last act on this earth the you know massacre of the people that exactly um, firing directly. But uh, um, so I'll go back to that point as well, which is this is a misrepresentation from what we're facing right now. What we're facing isn't Soviet and it isn't um, the clash of ideology in terms of like, capitalism versus communism anymore. It's about homegrown radicalization. Point. Yes. Um, but Trident itself, this is a motion on Trident. Yeah. Trident is a deterrent to other nuclear weapons, not terrorism. It's like asking chemotherapy to treat heart disease. No, that's true. <coughs> <laughs> No, I totally um, don't accept that because trying isn't acting as a deterrent right now because you're facing the trying is totally irrelevant and issues we're actually facing right now and um, don't have to cut up. Um, so yeah, so um, yes, how do we just, uh, continue to justify the political choice for starting by refusing to invest in things that actually matter in society? And um, another point which I want to very quickly is that we keep telling countries that you can't make nuclear weapons, right? It's really morally unjustifiable to say that while you're holding a nuclear weapon. Um, and by doing that, you create two tiers of society, that's not maybe. Um, so, and as well as that, we only want to select a few countries that have these nuclear weapons, as, like Germany doesn't have them, Japan doesn't. So many countries, there are 180 countries in the world that don't have them. Um, so, on that point, I would just like to say thank you very much for listening to Alice for these reasons. I strongly encourage you to vote for more. during the Korean War, 
Um, the Soviet Union disguised their pilots as Chinese pilots to avoid the US and its nuclear weapon capacity, as did China send volunteers to attack the US um, to avoid declaration of war. This shows how far countries are yeah, you mentioned how it was used as a, you know, obviously argument in charge of the Cold War, but in fact, it didn't stop the United States and Soviet Union from spreading their ideologies to this indirectly in Korea and Vietnam, etc., which arguably affected those countries worse than, you know, it should have been a direct conflict. Yeah, but the point is that the US was directly protected by the nuclear weapons, as was all of their allies. And any war against the US or the UK would be a limited war, not a proxy war, but not all out, which would assure our destruction. We have political benefits, such as the United Nations Council, which I believe is actually quite a benefit to the UK. We have a platform where we can disseminate our ideas, promote our equality and our democracy throughout the world, rather than an all important veto on, on different um, topics. So why shouldn't we have this role in the world? On that point? Yeah. I think that sharing equality across the world by saying, we can have our weapons of mass destruction, you can't have yours. How is that equality or spreading democracy at all? It creates, like Jason said, tears of society. I'll, I'll take that point further on. Um, now let's look at the US, and we've got people that, um, oh, we're gonna try and freeload off the US, where we have President-elect Donald Trump actually promising to span NATO because countries are failing to reach, to reach the 2% obligation within, the, you know, within, within NATO, which is probably one of the reasons why in Eastern Europe we're seeing that the UK might be able to properly defend against Russia, we're a much smaller country. But if everyone in NATO promised to spend 2%, we would see a much better defense against places like Russia in terms of normal defense, and we also have the security of nuclear weapons in case of that last resort. Um, the cost, which is actually 40, uh, 31 billion pounds upfront, paid by the Ministry of Defence, which has a 2% set on their um, military spending, which means that we cannot put that money in NHS. And we've got 2 billion every year, which is 5% of the military budget, which is about. Can that simply be changed? As soon as we scrap training, can we say that oh, no, we don't want that 2%? Yes, but that's what the motion is about. That's, the motion is about scrapping Trident and it's not about changing the military budget. And furthermore, we can assure that because we have obligations in the world just like anyone else does. Let's look at the view of military experts. And the stakeholders are the military experts in these nuclear capacities. And a report into the British military attitudes to nuclear weapons and disarmament was completed in June 2015, found that the majority of interviewees supported the UK's military and um, UK nuclear weapons, and many interviewees asserted that nuclear weapons have ensured peace since World War II. And one of the many arguments put forward is that you cannot uninvent the idea of nuclear weapons because they will always be there. Now let's think about the future. Let's not think backwards. Let's not go back to a time where, we, where nuclear weapons don't exist. That's not possible. We cannot invent them. Let's think about a different future. Let us think about a future where we are no longer afraid of nuclear weapons. A future where we accept that nuclear weapons exist, but we have the defense and the capabilities to stop a nuclear attack. A world where, in, despite of them existing, we have made it a better place. There will be more dangerous and brutal war and weapons later. Um, many nuclear we weapons, nuclear weapons are not the end. We'll have, a we'll have 
weapons, we'll have um, anti-manor bombs, we'll have all these different... All that political... Yes? You don't really need anti-manor bombs. You don't actually need very many nuclear bombs to kill everybody on Earth through nuclear winter. Yeah, but my point is that when we eventually um, come up properly and when we develop the capabilities to defend against nuclear weapons, there will be another bomb, there will be another way to get past that. Um, and we actually are developing system. We are developing a safer world through deals like Iran, where we have um, made the world a peaceful and safer world. Um, but we cannot call it a day from that. Three. Sorry. Yeah. Oh. Uh, you mentioned the Iran deal. Uh, the other thing, as I think Jason said earlier, it's a bit hypocritical for us to say these countries cannot have nuclear weapons. No matter what, they are in terms of ideology. If we're having them. Yeah. It, the, the point is that. Uh, another nuclear state isn't. I'll come back to that later. Um, three years ago, we no one saw that Daesh was coming. We live in a relatively peaceful world now, but we don't know what the future holds. Three years ago, we never would have thought that Russia would be attempting to expand expand its um, borders. But we will continue to work in conditions where nuclear weapons are no longer necessary, and in fact, we've already reduced our stockpiles. It is naive to suggest that the grand gesture of total UK disarmament would change the calculations of nuclear states are those seeking to acquire nuclear weapons. And in conclusion, I understand and respect the view to want to scrap our nuclear weapons. I agree with the idea of scrapping our nuclear weapons in exchange for peace, but we can't do that. We do not live in this perfect, peaceful world, and any nuclear disarmament would be seen as a weakness. In the case of nuclear weapons, pragmatism prevails, and the world will never be a nuclear free because we cannot uninvent nuclear weapons. So let's just stop pretending that we can ever stand to gain from this. I urge for you to vote against the tonight. Thank you very much for that. We'll now go for questions from the floor. So we're going to go for uh, two rounds of questions to either side and a statement motion. So, anyone have any questions for the proposition to begin with? Really? These are pretty yeah. Well, I mean, as, the, as you rightfully said, the, the security manifest, which details the risks to the United Kingdom and our allies, did indeed place the top three. Um, the top three threats, um, you know, cyber terrorism, uh, tax, and uh, financial crime is also lowered down. And so you only got to number five or six until you got one, which credibly could be uh, relevant to nuclear weapons. However, is it not the case that it's, it's the status quo bias kicks in? Because it's a, it's a given that the United Kingdom maintains a nuclear arsenal, the potential threats from these uh, from these countries is uh, suppressed, and, and by healing it, we're effectively pumping it right off. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. Like as you said, it isn't you know, all the top three threats from the free circuit, top three certainly cannot be resolved by nuclear weapons, but to be honest, I don't see how any problem can be resolved by nuclear weapons. You know, said, for example, with ISIS, you know, there's always a chance that some sort of terrorist group could hijack or get nuclear weapons. They would have no problem, like, you know, obviously Russia and these countries are not going to fire nuclear weapons because somebody else will fire back, but there's groups like ISIS that don't want to use it, and, you know, how we're going to retaliate, we couldn't do anything with that, and we don't get it. But if we did, we'd like to 
due to the companies who to, you know, have it can be partly that any sort of practical use, apart from, unfortunately, a scenario of political sort of use, it's more of a political weapon than a actual one because, you know, the government said it was able to point at Corbyn and the SNP and like to say, you know, you guys are from this. So, will that answer your question? And with that, we'll take a question from, for the opposition. Sorry. Yourself, sir, if you'd like to state your name for uh, thanks. Uh, I'd uh, just like to ask, um, we can't actually use Trident without the permission of the United States, I believe. Uh, are you sure about that? Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Stuff here. yeah. Oh, I'm yeah, you know, yeah. You may as well. Uh, I, so the only thing is that the, the I will concede this, that the submarines are serviced in Georgia. Um, but again, in terms of like launch codes and all that, it's how much under the if you can. So. Oh, okay. Also, the idea is that that's a misconception, man. Uh, no question. Okay, I won't kind of answer questions for the opposition then. Uh, does anyone else have a question for the opposition? Oh, wait. Uh, for the opposition? Yeah. For the opposition? Yeah. Is he did a lot of talking about the Cold War, the Soviets, the Chinese. The point is, <clears throat> thankfully, we're no longer attempting to repel the red scum. But even if, we, <laughs> even if we, even if we were, tensions in regards to nuclear weapons reached their peak whenever there was no limitations on the development of nuclear weapons, the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's when there was no curtailing on the development of nuclear weapons. Now, by putting us in this exclusive position of continuing to develop and own nuclear weapons, doesn't that only increase the risk to ourselves, enemies, and allies alike? Well, with all respect to, there is regulations surrounding nuclear weapons, and the US does try to prevent our countries from creating new nuclear weapons. Oh, and we try. <laughs> 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 is that very sorry. Stating point of motion something about you're not aware of it yourself. No, I uh, have like a question about the motion in general that isn't necessarily decided. Is it in the constitution? I can't. It's not in the constitution. It just makes it really inconvenient for me. So, uh, yeah, fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just like to point out that the motion is very limited. It's limited to China. Between the proposition is very much trying to turn it into general, like are nuclear weapons good or bad? But um, I think it, it doesn't leave much room to talk about multilateral disarmament of nuclear weapons, which is my personal belief. And I would have preferred it if it had been a more open question, so we really could have discussed nuclear weapons in general. I mean, I feel like I but this was basically based off of Labour's plan to be scrapped Trident, uh, limited in, in its capacity, though that motion is. Uh, so if you want to blame anyone here, do the time on the tradition of blame. <laughs> <laughs> anyone from the proposition might go as well? Yeah. <laughs> I just like to say that like, it's very, I thought maybe it's just a limitation of motion, but it is very difficult to talk about any further without talking about like, nuclear weapons. So basically, um, multilateral disarmament would be fantastic, but we all ultimately don't have control over any of them. 
for that and we're running other government's policy. And so I think it's probably a good idea. It's not the example, so we're all going to do the right thing. So, <laughs> I would really like to ask another question of the proposition. He's arguing for tributes. Would you like to ask them? There are we? I got Yes, Peter. Um, I'd like to question the assertion that we have a lot of situation in the future where we actually need them. Um, the proposition made, and was that the economy is certainly in history? But I think that the uh, opposition side's argument was very much based in the past. It was based on uh, like Wednesday's ideology of capitalism versus communism. Because if you look at the facts that are actually emerging today, it is radical ideology, it is tariff sales, it is things that you can't you can't just strike a tariff sale with a nuclear bomb, and because that's not the, that's not the nature of the fact basis. So I think that's where it, it's moving. I think the trends are very obvious in that regard. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm at. Okay. I would like to go back to that. Um, yeah. um, as um, you stated, we cannot predict what will happen in three years in Russia. We, didn't have, we, did, we couldn't um, three years ago say that Russia was going to attack Ukraine or do whatever they were in Ukraine. And we couldn't say three years ago that Diet would be as big as they are today. So we cannot say that North Korea will have weapons tomorrow or some, someone else will have weapons. We already got countries like India and other countries around the world that do have weapons that are not part of the UN um, treaties against nuclear weapons. Yes, there's one more question for the opposition. Right. Are you, you going to scratch your head and you're going to put your hand up for. <laughs> <laughs> So, to be honest, it, it, it's not a, a point addressing some of the arguments made within the speeches itself, but rather uh, Kira's point in that abstaining point, which I don't know how much of a point of abstention it really was. Um, the point is that to separate the morality of nuclear weapons from the Trident debate is, is frankly ludicrous. To say that's the reason to separate the reason, we wouldn't be here debating this if there weren't the question of whether nuclear weapons are immoral or not. We aren't here to discuss whether we should abandon our armies. We are here to discuss uh, nuclear weapons, specifically Trident. So I would like to say that you can't separate the two. They are intertwined intrinsically. Is there um, as, as much as that is the case, they are at the point. Um, I, I believe that this motion actually just gave scope for Trident in that it's more, I agree, is Trident morally fantastic? No, absolutely not. More like the idea of nuclear weapons haunts everyone really, no one really likes them. But the idea is that they're there and it also the strategy, it's more of the strategic ones to try to does to the moral. And I, like, I don't think anyone here wants nuclear weapons. And if, we call it all multilaterally dishonoured, it would be absolutely great. And there are efforts being made towards that. I mean, I, I, enriching takes so many years. So if you, if you get everyone off the map with nuclear arms, then you could actually ward up a case where no one could fire one at a certain stage. So, yeah, I mean, look, no one's just sitting here saying we love nuclear war, but the idea is that. Sorry, I'm going to say Yeah, it's just the idea that they're there and that at the end of the day, they are securing peace and prosperity for the Western values, which is the best values.
those arguments and people say, you know, Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, etc., should keep their weapons in case, you know, Russia decided to reenact the old Soviet days and take over. But at the same time, you know, the house, Russia has invaded Crimea. It's also bombing uh, a level of moment and causing numerous casualties. And, you know, unfortunately, we may see the Baltic states next, and that would be first Russia versus NATO direct confrontation. And, you know, nuclear weapons haven't stopped any of that. You know, it's Maybe that's the fault of the NATO, UK, US, and France, and not doing anything. But nonetheless, you know they haven't solved it. To make the other point, but the non-proliferation treaty is interesting too, because I think it is a bit paradoxical because it says you know the five UN Security Council countries can have nuclear weapons. You know there are only five. The other uh, India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel both didn't sign up in the first place or quit. In the case of North Korea, a few years ago to build their own. So I think it's a bit. So on the one hand, it's saying it's okay these five countries can have it, but at the same time, you have to, you know, we have to work towards eventual disarmament. We've seen some progress, you know, since the 80s, America and Russia have at least cut back in their nuclear weapons. So I think, you know, about 5,000 each, when it used to be in the tens of thousands. But, you know, ultimately, I think we need a more substantial treaty that says, all right, we're going to work towards it, you know, we'll regulate whatever uranium or whatever stuff is used to make nuclear weapons, and we'll say to the countries, all right, you know, at some point we need to sort this out. I know it's really tough, and certainly America and Russia, especially with President-elect Trump, which are very reluctant, he doesn't seem to know even how to get around this work, but uh, certainly we need to have some sort of united world. I mean, that's the purpose of the United Nations, really, to work out these sort of things, so it's about time for it to you know, show forth and work out some sort of long-term solution to this. Thanks, and thank you very much for that. And before we move to the vote, I'd just like to uh, say a bit of a big round of applause for the fact that we have no less than three main speakers in this chamber this evening, so a big round of applause. prior to the debate this evening, so if you, before the debate this evening, your opinion was uh, favour the motion, say aye. Aye. And if you are against the motion, say nay. Raise your hand. Yeah, so the next motion, the next vote, sorry, my head's open. This one is on speakerability, and this one is technically only open to people who have actually signed up on the members and have their membership cards with them. Uh, if you don't have a membership card, you can sign up at the end. No name is membership card. Uh, I'm going to sign a membership card again. Uh, yeah, so uh, if you thought the, this is on speaker performance, so if you thought the proposition that spoke better tonight, uh, please raise your hand. Thanks, And if you thought the opposition spoke better, 
And if you thought both teams spoke equally well, you can have